it feels weird to me as a very quant heavy person to be saying that we need both more statistical rigor and to trust our gut. But that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we should trust the data first if we have it and backfill with human assumptions because of that, that ability to digest external context. Welcome to the Channel Mastery Podcast. If you're a specialty business and brand leader obsessed with understanding what the most effective channels are today to connect with, serve, and sell to your target consumers, then you've just found the perfect podcast and community. My name is Kristen Carpenter, and I'm your host and the founder of Verde Brand Communications, the presenting sponsor of Channel Mastery. Verde created the Channel Mastery Podcast to level the playing field for the specialty brands we serve. Every week on this show, we study how consumer preferences are changing and the evolving channels they like to use to engage with their favorite brands. Once again, welcome to Channel Mastery and subscribe today. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to episode number 144 of the Channel Mastery Podcast. My name is Kristen Carpenter, and I'm your very stoked host and also the CEO and founder of Verde Brand Communications. Well, you might be wondering why I'm so stoked. For those of you who know me well, you know that I'm stoked a lot of the time, if not most of the time, but I'm even more stoked today than usual. And the reason's pretty clear. I just know you're going to get so much out of today's episode and you're going to learn a ton from today's guest. In fact, what we're about to share here on Channel Mastery is mission critical information for your specialty brand at just the right time before Black Friday, Cyber Monday and holiday 2020. I'm pretty sure that we're all aware that this year isn't about to get any simpler or less weird. And that's exactly why we keep landing amazingly sharp guests to share with you, Channel Masters, to help us all get through this crazy, crazy time in the finest style possible. And before we dive into the goods here today, it's important that we thank the presenting sponsor of Channel Mastery, Verde Brand Communications. Verde is a specialty-focused agency that lives to power the consumer decision journey of our amazing clients. Our approach to multi-channel communications is integral to the consumer's online discovery, engagement, nurturing, and yes, conversion. Let Verde help you build and activate your brand's community. Please check us out at verdepr.com. Verde's also the first agency in our space to pioneer an immersive digital training resource in the Multi-Channel Marketing Academy, created just for specialty brand leaders. Registration for our second cohort opens September 15th, and please go to channelmastery.com forward slash course to learn all about our second cohort opportunity. And please also know that the show notes containing resources referenced in the show today are found both at veritypr.com and channelmastery.com. Okay, back to today's superpower summit. Well, I guess my guest is a superpower. His name is Roy Steves, and he is a Google Ads and e-commerce expert who is just also an incredibly sharp entrepreneur. In fact, Roy is one of two incredibly sharp entrepreneurs who lead StatBid, a paid search and Google AdWords agency. The other is Shiloh Jones, the former eight-year president of lifestyle retailer Evo.com. 
We share an incredible brand in outdoor research as a client. So in today's episode, you're going to hear all about how Statbit was founded to upend what Roy refers to as a rapidly calcifying, I love that word, right? PPC and paid search industry with a reputation for charging clients in a way that was kind of more about harvesting than strategically serving. So Roy and Shiloh set out to course correct on that. This episode has a lot of incredibly strategic, valuable information just for specialty brand and business leaders. We get into the biggest priorities that we need to be watching as we head into the big sales marker weekends before the end of 2020. This is, in Roy's words, a year like no other when it comes to paid search and, well, when it comes to a lot of things, right? I mean, let's be honest. But as it pertains to Roy's expertise, I want you to consider this. Google Ads bid automation tools were not exactly built with the kind of wildly abnormal shopping behavior we're experiencing right now. So be sure and listen in today to learn exactly what you should be vigilantly watching for and how you can plan, react, respond, and learn to serve your consumers in the most remarkable way possible through a pandemic. It's very, very evident that Roy loves to talk shop, and I literally feel like we've won the frigging lottery having him on our show today, everyone. So let's not wait a minute longer. We're going to drop right into the Roy Steves Stat Bid episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast. I am very proud to introduce my guest to you today, Roy Steves, who is the CEO and co-founder of StatBid. He is here to talk with us about paid search during a very relevant time of year. This uh, show will be airing September 2020, and we obviously have Cyber Monday, Black Friday, holiday, so many things on the horizon, and I know that the time frame for all of those will be completely reinvented as everything else has been this year. So Roy is here to offer some clarity on paid search. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. It's awesome to have you here. We have a my uh, integrated services director, Chris Dickerson, who is just an integral part of my team, has highly recommended you and your business partner, Shiloh, on so many levels. So it's wonderful to have you with here today. Have yeah, absolutely. Today. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's always fun uh, when you when you get to collaborate with somebody who has shared clients for sure. Yep. And we do share outdoor research as one of our clients. Let's start by having you give a bit of background on yourself and then on StatBid. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually in programming. So I got an animation degree, uh, the kind of thing that you'd study if you wanted to go work for Pixar someday. But eventually, after that degree, I got into e-commerce. Um, I liked the sort of nuts and bolts of, of business operations even more than, than some of the, uh, the more creative things that I learned in, in that process. Out of the gates, I, I was working at a company that is, uh, that is now known as Build.com, uh, based in the same town that I went to school. So that's where I, I learned how e-commerce operations work. I built a warehouse and an inventory system. Um, we went through a, a merger with, uh, with their new parent company. And, uh, and so my career then sort of skipped around a little bit on that programming side. Eventually found my way back to e-commerce specifically uh, in 2010 uh, when I joined uh, Pool Supply World. Uh, so I was in the Sacramento area then. 
And, uh, and so I was building another warehousing system, but I also built uh, inventory, forecasting, purchasing tools, analytics, attribution, uh, session trackers, all sorts of, of uh, very technical little bits and bobs uh, that, that I could use to do things that other e-commerce operators couldn't really do because we had a custom framework and I, being the wizard that could cast the right spells on it, could get it to do anything I wanted it to do with enough effort. As I was building all these systems, I realized that they weren't really doing anything meaningful with, with uh, Google AdWords at the time, now, now called Google Ads. And, uh, and so I, I offered, I'm like, I told my boss, I'm like, why don't you give me like $500 and I'll show you what this is for. This should just be applied arithmetic. And being an Eric engineer, I figured how hard could it be? Luckily, I was right. And so uh, he gave me a recurring budget and he said, okay, well, spend this and then we'll see how it looks and then we'll decide whether or not we want to give you another chunk. And in that first year, we added 30% of the business and we were already you know, a team of 19 uh, doing tens of millions. And so doubling it in, in just a couple of years propelled me from engineering to CMO. Uh, and by our third year, we <laughs> caused awesome. enough ripples in the, in the marketplace that we were acquired by Leslie's Pool Supplies, which uh, is the only national brick and mortar chain in, in that industry. Everyone thinks they're a local little store. That's an intentional <laughs> appearance, but they are you know, a 900 store plus uh, behemoth. And, uh, and so then I got to play with a very large data set. I found over over the course of a, the first couple of years I was there that uh, that my personality wasn't a great fit for that kind of traditional corporate environment, and the sheer amount of data was very very fun to play with. But it was discouraging that I couldn't make that data uh, accomplish more things in short periods of time. And that's that's entirely my biases and my my being used to that kind of rapid fire uh, kind of environment. And so I found myself in a position where I could afford to take on it a bunch of, of risk and do something crazy. So I decided to start uh, Snapbid after some conversations with, uh, with Shiloh early on. He was also an e-commerce operator at the time. His background obviously uh, overlaps with Evo, uh, where, where he was president for many years. And so we were both at a sort of point where we're like, okay, well, we've, we've climbed the ladder in e-commerce more than once in, in his case. And so why don't we try something else? We understand the context better than any other agency operator from the retailer side. And then obviously we, we can translate a lot of that to direct to consumer. That's where, where we started. We looked at, at the page search space and at even in 2010, let alone say 2015, that space was already pretty mature as far as channels go. A lot of the experimentation uh, and the like was going on with, with Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram and so on. And not, not a lot of active experimentation was necessary because it was a mature channel. But that also meant that the vendors in the space were starting to get complacent, in my opinion. And, and so it seemed like because paid search agencies are typically paid on a percent of, of managed spend model, they're incentivized to spend as much as they can get away with without being fired. And so Dangerous. Month, yeah, it's like every month is, okay, I know we spent more than you planned. May a couple, may a couple, next month will be different. Um, and it just never is. And so I, I saw that as an opportunity. And so we came into it really focusing on a difference of motive because that 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 percent of spend is so adversarial. Like, like if you think about it, like if you've ever read... Uh, like Freakonomics or, or listen to their podcast, you're used to thinking in this kind of motivation dictates outcome kind of, of mind space. And so uh, so we really focus on, on efficiency of spend. It doesn't make us as good at spending a large amount of money very, very quickly, which sometimes somebody launching a new brand would expect and, and hope for, but we're way, way more efficient and reliable than some of those other, other approaches. And so you, you find the right tool for the job. And we found uh, a niche of client types that 
we really enjoy working with because we can align our, our motives and they allow us to manage their money as if it were our own and, and we, we handle it accordingly. And that has been quite a lot of fun because as my original hypothesis about the market uh, stated, we have been you know, sort of treated differently than other, other vendors you know, possibly pitching for the same business. Now, the entire space has improved in the past five years. So we have better competitors, which I actually love than when we first started. But yeah, it's an entirely just a bunch of e-commerce geeks that decided, hey, we can do better than everyone else we've seen do this one thing. And we've been doubling down for the for the past five years now. So there's two things I have to, to kind of launch from. That's a really great comprehensive overview. In the last five years, leading up to where I'm going in my next question, which is COVID. So hold on, everybody. We are going to get there because <laughs> ultimately that's what today is all about. It's discovering like what needs to happen in terms of approach and motivation now that we have a brand new consumer and a lot of different consumer behavior that we're trying to uh, work with out there. But tell us what you've seen, not necessarily in the past five years, but in the past year prior to COVID, like what were some of the main evolutions that you saw in paid search in terms of like as part of a channel mix? Because it seems like the the intention of it and the actual instrument of it have evolved. Yeah, I think that prior to COVID, you know, so up through maybe January of, of 2020, uh, the biggest changes within the page search space were related to automation. So a lot of vendors, and to a certain degree ourselves, were investing heavily into making very smart, uh, very fast, very precise bidding solutions, or at least ones that had really shiny taglines that you could sell against, um, depending on on which solutions you're looking at. But um, Google spending a lot of their resources on their in-house automation was really starting to affect the landscape. And so their transitions toward what they call smart campaigns was mixing up the way that that each competitor in an auction was going to bring their product to market against everyone else. It mostly had to do with, with something that had been very predictable. You know, you enter your bid here, you get your cost per click here, you know, and here's your conversion rate, here's your revenue. You know, everybody understood this pipeline that was working within paid search. And now Google says, okay, I know it's an auction ultimately under the hood, but what we'd really like you to do is let us manage all of your bids and all of your competitors' bids. And and anyone who stops and thinks about it, that's a wild conflict of interest. And it so we sure were, is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if, if they're the ones uh, deciding the bids on behalf of competitors, there will never be a situation where that shouldn't be questioned. It right. can work. You know, Google's Google's operating in good faith, you know, they're, they're, as far as you, any of us can tell, but their motives, once again, aren't aligned with their, their promises. And so we have to assume that they are very, very smart. They have a lot of PhDs in, on their bench working on very clever solutions that aren't quite designed to do what we want them to do. They're designed to make Google a lot of money. And so, so our approach had been very myopically focused on ensuring that the accounts that we were managing were not giving Google money Google didn't deserve. And, you know, a lot of things like um, accidental clicks on mobile apps are, are, you know, classic examples of Google adding a lot of gristle into the sausage. And, and so we were really focusing on trying to improve the quality of the sausage. 2020 hits. Now we're just trying to make sure that the grinder keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Uh, so when, when it first hit, everyone's wallets 
just snapped shut. Like all spending seemed to stop. And I don't mean just like client budgets. I mean, shopper budgets, like people just conversion rates tanked, volume tanked all around, you know, mid to late March. And so our first wave of responses was, we're all trying to ensure that we were curtailing costs quickly enough to follow that trend. And all of that automated bidding that everyone had been investing so heavily into for the past several years had not been prepared for that. That was not a use case that they had in mind. They could not be trained against that sample data because it didn't exist. And, uh, and so, yeah, so we went into the biggest period of uncertainty that, that the channel has faced, that e-commerce in general has faced, and doing so at a point where the tools were designed under very different assumptions. And so there's a lot more manual management going on or hit and miss efficiency. Okay. And that's, when you say that, that's not saying at your company, you're saying industry-wide. Yeah, that's the impression that I get, at least when, when we compare notes with, with other players at, in our kind of niche. So there are other small agencies, you know, about our weight class that, that we're friendly with. And, uh, and while we obviously have to be careful about what we can share, we, we will regularly share like, you know, what direction the wind seems to be blowing. We'll compare that with what we're hearing from, from our contacts at Google. We'll, we'll compare that against what people at large enterprise, you know, uh, marketplaces are seeing and things like that. And so when we start to collect opinions from a bunch of different sources, it becomes a, a relatively useful anecdotal source of insight. That's fascinating. So I have to say, um, robots and humans together once again, like <laughs> I don't think we're going to get rid of automation anytime soon, but it really seems like in times of crisis, we all reach for a person. And I think that the more that all of us can um, just ingrain that in our audiences, that there are people behind these specialty brands, the, the stronger we're all going to be coming through it. So what does that look like necessarily for you? Because we're here today to really talk about, you know, what are some of the best practices going forward that people need to really keep an eye on and be disciplined about going through COVID? Yeah, I, I tend to think of it less in the context of best practices, partially because I think that each account has enough sort of unique context that that one solution won't necessarily work for anyone else. But sort of sibling to that would be knowing what symptoms look like when things are going wrong. Okay. And, and so for us, we do the best we can to sort of keep the car in the middle of the lane, but we spend a lot of energy making sure that we know where the edge of the road is. And, uh, and that does tend to be something that's more universal. And, um, you know, as I was mentioning in March, when, when, when consumer spending was falling off of a cliff temporarily, obviously, the equivalent there is, is ensuring that, that spend comes down as quickly. And the reason that wouldn't normally happen is that you're using some sort of moving average, and the moving average doesn't reflect uh, what you can expect from tomorrow's data. And as soon as your data is no longer predictive, then you have to, you have to take a look at, at what data you are using to make those kinds of decisions for sure. So I, I think that, yeah, automation certainly not going anywhere. I am, I'm obviously investing a lot of my own personal time into it, let alone the rest of our team or our industry. But the use case that we had been building for doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and so now we can't just say, okay, well, the past four weeks plus a comparison to the same period last year is going to give me a good extrapolation for what to expect from the next four weeks. It just isn't so. And so that combination of 
automation that allows us to achieve a statistical rigor that wouldn't otherwise be possible, combined with the fact that humans are really good at absorbing a bunch of disparate sources of context. And so we can, we can think about the fact that I know that this date on the calendar is going to have this kind of weird effect, even though we've never had this big sale before or whatever the, the event is. We can make reasonably good guesses about the types of impacts those kinds of events will have. And those are things that you just can't expect from the current generation of automation solutions because they just can't be trained on the kind of use cases we're facing because they are unbelievably unique <laughs> as far as you know any of the data that we've been collecting for the past decade. And would you say that going forward, Roy, that we're going to continue to see that just kind of challenge and, and um, unpredictability on the horizon, especially through the end of 2020 and probably Q1, I would imagine, of 2021. Like what's your gut say about the horizon line and what's leading up to it? Yeah. So obviously we're seeing a, a big influx into e-commerce. Um, after the sort of initial panic of March uh, blew over and people realized the situation they were in and started shopping online to try and fulfill their needs, um, we're going to keep some of that gain. Some of it is going to go back offline, but not much of it. The thing that I don't think that people are planning for as much as, as I'm trying to is that while 20% year-over-year gains in August are fantastic, if you're looking at what makes up that 20%, even if next August is still 20% year over year up, I think that the types of products and the type of buying patterns that are adding up to that are going to be different. And that's because the demand cycles right now are not naturally recurring. They're, they're a response to a new change in behavior from the shoppers, and the shoppers change behavior because of some sort of input. Some new information has entered their context, and they're making different decisions and behaving differently as a result. And so as that shopper behavior continues to evolve and adapt as those shoppers find new routines and new rhythms and new priorities in their lives that's what's going to start to shake out into a new normal. I think we're going to see continuing gains in e-commerce share overall, but it's not going to stabilize until shoppers start to get into some sort of new routines. And that, obviously, at this point, we're looking at next summer, very likely. So we're anticipating some of the same seasonal behaviors that, that we've seen in the past, but we're definitely not just saying, okay, well, Black Friday is going to be 180% of the previous Friday. That kind of math just isn't going to translate quite as literally as, as it might have in the past. Well, I talk with a lot of people to try and keep the audience of Channel Mastery informed and obviously Verde's clients. And some of the sales reps I've been connecting with lately have basically finalized a lot of their preseasons and they're looking at about half of the orders. And this is apparel. Um, and that's what they were forecasting. So I just wanted to throw that out there that there was like a group that has had to re, they've approached that several thousand times, I think, <laughs> and become, quote, a business partner more than a sales representative to the retailers that they serve. But I'm just throwing that out there as, as one thing to kind of enable us to dig a little bit deeper. It does seem like that is something that we're seeing from the buyer side on wholesale, which to me means there's more opportunity in terms of what people are going to be discovering and purchasing online, but there, that also could speak to a challenge in the supply chain. So are you navigating that as well for your clients? Uh, to a certain degree, because we focus on sort of mid-market clients, you know, uh, t ones that are typically doing, you know, maybe between two and 200 million a year in, in, on their site. 
you know, that's not a hard, fast rule, but it's really where, where we get the most traction. And, uh, and so within that space, uh, there's a big difference between, you know, the retail players and the direct-to-consumer players. And so, you know, you're talking about the, the wholesale supply chain on the direct-to-consumer side. We've definitely seen uh, issues where the demand is there, but the, the, the inventory isn't. And so when that happens, then the strategies definitely need to pivot. And, uh, and my preference uh, has been if, if we have like very broad inventory, say, say thousands of units of each, each uh, item, then you can do some some very loose extrapolations to get an idea of, of the, how fast you'll sell through that inventory. And then the goal becomes tuning your ad spend or pricing, if that's a variable that you can manipulate, so that you can maximize the margin off of those finite units. If you expect you're going to sell every unit, then you should spend as little as possible to do so. And that's that's not something that, that you'd usually hear from a paid search agency that's paid to spend as much of your money as they can. But realistically... You know, if you're going to sell every unit, then then you might as well ma- go for a margin maximization. But not not every team is is set up with the infrastructure required to to track that and and feed that all the way back to their paid search decisions. But you can still black box it pretty well if you know you know this category is going to be affected because I won't get that container for another 90 days. Then make those decisions. You know, even if they're not as granular as this skew to this skew this skew you can still make those decisions on category levels and still put yourself in a much better position margin-wise by the time you get to the bottom of that box. Right. Okay. That's fantastic. This is a little bit of a segue. So my grandfather was a flying Tigers pilot. And so he flew in, you know, every major war up until like, I mean, it was just crazy. So he's passed. And I loved his stories when I was growing up because he would talk all about how they used instruments and had to use them analog. Like they were literally operating these flight instruments. <laughs> and everything you're speaking about is reminding me of that because ultimately everything now is like mechanized and there's technology. And and like you can think about, okay, I'm going to program in Los Angeles to New York. But if I like am a tiny bit off course you're going to end up in like Georgia, right? Like, so I almost feel like that's what we're talking about here is you're introducing like, um, a spotter to, to pull from a climbing bouldering term, like, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, like, it's really important to jockey this closely and watch certain variables to make sure that even a tiny bit off course can make you a huge amount off course during a year when that's really, really a dicey proposition to be really, really off course. I mean, even more than we are. Yeah, I mean, to carry on with the climbing metaphor, there is some good news. And that is, sure, we've gone from top rope to, to free, free climb. But uh, I love this, it. some of the same skills are still in play, you know, and, and some of the same strengths that you've developed are still in play. It's just that you can't operate under the same assumptions that you were before because you don't have that safety net. You don't have that, that you know, the spotter line. So it's definitely... Still drawing from the same playbook, though. It's just that we need to be a bit more diligent about it. There were certain, there were a lot of things actually across all of e-commerce that that we had sort of gotten into routines that they were just sort of on autopilot. You know, you set it and forget it kind of thing, and that's that's expected. That should be how things develop, and that's partially because it's it's already a solved system. It's a mature channel for your business if if you've already been running. You know, that whether it's a marketing channel, whether it's your e-commerce platform, whether it's whether it's a supply chain. And once you can trust it, you stop thinking about it. Well, now everybody's thinking about every piece all over again. And that can seem overwhelming. But remember, we've already solved this once. We just have different input assumptions at the beginning. And the rest of the way that we solve it just has to be a little bit faster. But it's not the first time we've solved it this time. So we can we can adapt a little bit more readily. 
And the, the, the tricky thing is that, that we will have to use a combination of more rigor, statistically speaking, because there's going to be more noise. We're going to be seeing a lot more shadows um, in, in data and otherwise. And at the same time, where you don't have data, we are going to have to rely on, on your, your instinct. And your instinct has been trained from all the years of you doing what you do to be, you know, that's what experience means. It means that you don't necessarily remember where you learned it, but it's still true. You know, and then the accumulation of that over years is valuable. And so it feels weird to me as a very quant heavy person to be saying that we need both more statistical rigor and to trust our gut. But that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we should trust the data first if we have it and backfill with human assumptions because of that, that ability to digest external context. Okay, that's super helpful. So this is a question that we didn't talk about in our um, rehearsal call. And so I think you're going to be, you know, completely fine with it. But um, obviously on your website, you have partnership with Google and with Facebook. And we've seen Amazon marketing services, especially with their recent report, their um, earnings report that came out. They obviously are doing quite a solid business there already. And we've heard about kind of the the Google and Facebook like stronghold on inventory with, um, you know, advertising, for example. So do you have anything that you'd like to share with the channel mastery audience in terms of like what the impact is going to be going forward with potentially like the trifecta instead of that duopoly? (laughs) Yeah. So I think that Amazon continues to be a completely different beast uh, from our perspective. And part of the reason is that we haven't really dipped into that part of the paid search space ourselves is because we're not yet confident that we understand what value Amazon is bringing to the table. Obviously, they, they, they've captured all of, all of these shoppers and they've got them locked up in the back and you have to pay the, to get access to those shoppers. But then the fact that you're basically getting taxed again to pay for ads on a closed platform, just something about that sticks in my teeth. And, uh, and so <laughs> I, until, until their tools mature enough that I can come at it with the same sort of technical sophistication that Google's scripts and API have allowed, I'm still sort of in a, in a wait and see. But I, I have the luxury of not being a direct-to-consumer or, or retail e-commerce operator myself. As an agency, I can decide you know, we're, we're good at these skills and we're still observing or learning on those skills. So we're going to focus on those. That's not to say that if you're, if you're running a direct-to-consumer site that you should also ignore Amazon. That, that may not at all be the case. But they are going to be your biggest competitor and you, they have utterly destroyed the concept of lifetime value for most uh, e-commerce purchases. Unless it's a replenishable there just isn't such a thing as loyalty. Like you can, you can take data from Google Analytics if you're, if you're willing to do enough scrubbing or if you have better data from your order management system, you can look at, at recurring order rates and you can see the changes of those order rates over time. And yeah, sure, somebody who's purchased from you once might be 30% more likely to purchase from you a second time versus somebody who's new to the site. But 30% isn't 100%. And I see a lot of assumptions going into brand building that are assuming 100%. Like if we sell them a product, they're going to come back and buy from us again and my brand is going to grow. That's only, you know, using my, my hypothetical number, that's only 30% true, which means it's 70% false. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Amazon double dips on that because you don't control 
the buyer experience. You don't control much of the messaging. You don't own the, the shopper. You don't own the communication. You don't own the fulfillment. You don't own the experience tip to tail. And so it's not really equivalent to your site. It's, it's basically a glorified eBay equivalent, but with additional layers of sophistication and a much larger audience. And so, so for, for retailers, it's almost exclusively a threat. Like there are retailers that can, that can buy at rates that make them competitive and, and there's a reason for them to go after it. But you know, if you're, if you're buying uh, at the same rate as all your competitors and then you're paying a big portion of that margin to Amazon, Amazon's eventually going to cut you out of the middle as they have again and again and again and again. And, right. uh, and so I think that, that retailers should be very wary of Amazon's motives. But if you see an opportunity and the math works out, that's that's fine. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm just saying the math has to work out and it rarely does. For direct-to-consumer, you have a lot more control. You, they can't cut out the middleman if you are manufacturing the product directly, which does give you an advantage. You still have to worry about things like um, knockoff products and and the like. And there's a whole other you know, yeah. subgenre of, of people that specialize in, in detecting and, and combating that. Um, but direct-to-consumer, at least you control the brand, you control the label on the product. And in that way, you are actually getting a little bit inside your, your shopper's minds because they have your label on their product when they get it. And so that, right. that does help some. But I think that the, the boom in e-commerce and the fact that Amazon's own fulfillment took a while to sort of catch back up with COVID means that, that e-commerce is going to continue to grow faster than Amazon's share of that pie. So there's a lot of reasons to be excited to be in e-commerce, even uh, if Amazon's only one part of your your uh, go-to-market strategy. That's fantastic. That's gold right there. So I also wanted to ask before I let you go, I want to be cognizant of your time. Thank you so much. You've been super gracious. Um, do you have any quick takes on anything you're seeing on the horizon or kind of hearing inside baseball on around uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday and holiday? Yeah, so my concerns about those periods are definitely related to the uncertainty because a lot of the past years, we've been able to look at a year-over-year difference in momentum coming into those days. And we know what, what Black Friday and Cyber Monday looked like compared to the preceding you know, couple of months. And so, you, so we've been able to do pretty good forecasting going into it and promo planning around that. Um, and the good news is that a lot of those automated bidding solutions, including Google's, but also solutions like Sidecar and, and our internal tools and, and the like, are built to assume Black Friday and Cyber Monday are going to be super weird and not predictive of the following week. But this year is going to be different. And the <laughs> way that the shopping behavior is going to play out is going to be different. Now, the, the overall shape of the curve at an account-wide level or your Google Analytics site-wide level that curve may look familiar, but you, it's going to be a crapshoot on the y-axis. And so being able to respond to uh, differences between your expectations and what you're actually measuring is going to be key. If you have a strong confidence in, in your automated bidding, then fantastic. If you haven't really, if it hasn't really gotten into a rhythm yet, I would be cautious about um, continuing to run untested automation uh, into November uh, for sure. But I mean, if you're if you're preparing ahead of time and you're happy with the performance going into it, and you're ready to make rapid changes during the flow if things don't play out the way you expected them to, uh, then then you should be able to respond to to it pretty well. But my my biggest advice for doing those sort of flying by the seat of your pants changes is stick to the math, though, because our instincts are no better equipped for this than all the machine learning systems that have been trained on 
irrelevant data <laughs> prior to 2020. So some of our some of our instincts might be a little bit off. So when in doubt, go with chunkier uh, segments. Go with less specific assumptions. Draw a box around the problem rather than trying to surgically get in there. You're not going to have enough data. You're not going to have enough time. And so if you make broad assumptions about, about the way that uh, uh, you should be interacting with your catalog or your landing pages and treat them as larger groups, then you're going to have larger sample sizes for any of the math that you do, but you're also going to be less likely to chase uh, some, some patterns that, that aren't actually there that can frequently show up in smaller sample sizes and short timeframes. I feel like we should title this, this uh, podcast, The Year of Irrelevant Data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that might be too depressing. So we're not going to do that. So thank you so much. Is there anything that I forgot to ask you? Because you're such an incredible resource for my peeps, especially at this time of year. I mean, there's just a lot of like, thankfully we have been trained to be at the ready. I almost feel like we were maybe playing right field and now we're shortstop just to add one more baseball analogy in there. I don't know where those are coming from today. Forgive me, but you know, uh, it's, we're it's at- all the lack of team sports everywhere else. There uh, you go. <laughs> that, that is one niche that I have uh, definitely seen take a hit as you might expect. Yes. I think that there are two major things you can take a look at in a Google Ads account right now to get an idea of whether or not you have a problem on your hands. And that is by looking at the relative return on ad spend across devices. So left to left to their own devices, no pun intended, Google will spend more on mobile than they should. And the reason for that is, once again, they have a lot of gristle to toss into that grinder. The sausage is, is uh, quite the quite the <laughs> increasingly grisly uh, variety because of that. And so while the smart bidding systems do pretty well over long periods of time, you may see uh, inconsistencies. And so if, you're, if your mobile ROAS is half your computer ROAS, then you probably need to look at, at manually controlling uh, the bid adjustments under that. And all that means for, for those who haven't gotten into the weeds uh, in ads quite that heavily, uh, you can tell Google, hey, mobile's worth half as much as desktop to me. And desktops are worth 20% more than everything else. And with those coefficients, you can then shape your bids around your expected return. And Google does an okay job of that. But if you're running other bidding solutions other than Google's uh, built-in you know, T, T ROAS or smart bidders, then it's really important that you not forget about those because otherwise you will just be paying full bill for discount traffic on the mobile slice while your competitors are, are correctly uh, bidding appropriately. So the ROAS should be the same across those devices unless you have a very unique use case. Okay, You know, dollars to dollar. The into the peak, obviously you're, you're flying by the seat of your pants, but on the other side, just like we did in March, uh, you're going to see a lot of spend. You're going to see a lot of revenue coming off of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Make sure you're not spending too much the week after. So starting day after Cyber Monday on that Tuesday, make sure that you are reducing your spend proportional to your anticipated revenue. Otherwise, you end up with, with a pattern that we've dubbed the rain shadow. Um, and that's that's one of the more common mistakes that that I detect when I, when I do um, account reviews for, for folks. And speaking of that, can you uh, tell my amazing community where they can learn more about StatBid? And, and there's a special resource that you have available for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. So just like most agencies, we do account audits um, as part of our prospecting. But uh, but who likes getting audited? So we, we call ours <laughs> reviews. And unlike most of those that are you know three to five pages of auto-generated sales fodder, basically, that concludes at the end, therefore you should hire us. Ours are not at all like that. And uh, either myself or our director of account strategy does the, does the entire review from scratch for each account that we touch 
And if you're, you know, a full prospect and you're running the kind of site that we specialize in, sometimes these can get, you know, 20, 30 pages long. And they outline everything that we would do in your account or everything that we see in your account that, that concerns us. And theoretically, you can just run it off and implement it all yourself. That's kind of our goal. If you don't want to work with us, we hope that you don't need to work with anyone else either. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and so we make a lot of friends that way. But we can also do a sort of lightweight version of that, even if you're not in the market for an agency. It'd probably be five to seven pages or something, depending on the, the complexity of your account. But we like talking shop. And it, if it would take me 20 minutes to find something that would take you six hours to find, then there's an opportunity there. And there's definitely a reason for, for us to, to have a conversation. So for your listeners, I'm definitely opening up that sort of review light for anyone, regardless of whether they, they think they're in our target market. It's not a sales thing. This is just how we start conversations with other professionals and, and make new friends. That's awesome. And that can be found at statbid.com. Yep. Yeah, we've got a we've got a special uh, page for it, but feel free to reach out to us uh, however however you prefer, whether it's a contact over the over the uh, the sites forms or you find me on LinkedIn. Uh, either way, we'll uh, we'll definitely get you taken care of. And we'll have all the links in the show notes as well, everybody. And please be sure to check out Roy's LinkedIn presence because he has some very special content coming up, but there's also some really good stuff on there right now. So I've really been learning a lot from your LinkedIn feed and I can't wait to see all the new stuff that you're planning. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. I've definitely uh, invested my attention so that Q3 and Q4 are getting more content than heavy than usual. So it should be a lot of, uh, a lot of fun stuff to, to share and, and talk about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was just a pleasure having you on the show here today. And I look forward to keeping tabs on paid search with you as we go through this incredibly interesting time that we're in. Mm -hmm. I'm always happy to talk shop. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening, Channel Masters. Hey, the fact that you're still here shows me that you are super committed to being remarkable to your target consumer or shopper. I mean, no matter what changes we continue to navigate in our businesses in 2020 and beyond, one thing thankfully, remains clear. And that is the importance of focusing on being remarkable to our North Star, our absolute target consumer. Focusing on the North Star is how we'll not only get through this challenge that we're in, but it will also be how we grow through this incredibly evolutionary time that we're in. If you're hungry for more training and one-of-a-kind resources created to help you do just that, I have a special invitation just for you. Head on over to channelmastery.com forward slash course, and you can read all about our second cohort of the Multi-Channel Marketing Academy, which will be launching in early September, 2020. We've intentionally chosen this time frame because of the incredible relevance it has to planning and budgeting for the coming year. Please sign up there and you could be entered to win a free seat in the Academy in the second cohort. And while you are opting in with your email, you'll also be given access and a heads up to all of the incredible content that we're creating for our pre-launch. This will include free trainings and resources that we've been researching and building out just for specialty brand and business leaders like you. As always, thank you so much for being part of the Channel Mastery community and thank you for listening. See you next week.